Welcome to season two of the Downtown Den podcast. We're focusing in this series on female business leaders, successful women, whether it be in business, whether it be in politics, whether it be in sport. We're going to be interviewing some of the most inspirational female role models right across the UK. First up, we have the managing director of a construction company, Mansell Building Solutions. Angela Mansell, it's a family business. Angela joined the company um, about 15, 20 years ago. Obviously, challenges as a woman going into an industry sector that doesn't boast an awful lot of female talent, but also some challenges around the fact that she was perhaps seen a little bit as daddy's girl. Anyway, uh, I spoke to Angela in the den about those challenges, about in which she's involved the company and about her passion for Manchester, Greater Manchester socially, uh, but also for that football team that play at El Trafford. Have a listen to this. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. It's me, Frank McKenna, Chief Executive Group Chairman of Downtown and Business, speaking to Angela Manson. Welcome to Season 2 of the Downtown Den Podcast. Of course, in this series, we'll be focusing on female business leaders, winning women, women who have made a significant difference to the economy, the places where they live, and are, in my opinion, at least role models for other females who may be looking to get involved in business, private sector, or leadership roles. And I'm delighted to uh, join, be joined today by our first guest in this series. It's Angela Mansell from Mansell Building Solutions. She's the managing director there. And delighted to say, uh, Mansell have just signed up as a part of Downtown and Business. So welcome, Angela. Thank you, Frank. Thank welcome you. into the Downtown Den. So obviously we've known each other for a number of years now through the Downtown Network, but just give the listeners a flavour of your career journey. Um, so I am currently Managing Director of a family business. Um, my dad set up the business. Um over 30 years ago. Um, and I've been involved in this business for 20 years. Um, but prior to that, I had a traditional route through school um, and then on to university where I did a history degree. Um, and my dad had always said to me that um, construction was no place for women. Um, and that was when I was a teenager. And I think he meant that with the best intentions to protect me from what was in the 1990s, probably a dirty, horrible, you know, lack of diversity in the sector. It was a protectionist kind of um, angle um, rather than saying that women shouldn't be in construction. Um, but in my teens, I heard that messaging. So I went off to uni, did a history degree um, at Manchester Uni. And was going to teach, was going to be a teacher. Um, and then at the last minute, I bottled it and decided I wasn't going to teach. And I got involved in, in industry. And I'd always had a passion for travel. I'd always enjoy, enjoyed traveling. So um, I joined Air Tours as was and was involved in the travel industry. And then the planes hit the Twin Towers in 2001. And travel went into free fall. I was re-interviewed for my job three times. Secured it every time, obviously but then took a conscious decision to move out of travel. And at that point, my dad's business was growing and he decided in 2002 that potentially, you know, I had something to offer the business. So I got involved at the lower levels 
um, in a role with him and then have grown and evolved with the business over the last 20 years. Interesting. And listen, let me just go back to your dad's initial opinion of you getting involved in the construction sector. And I think that there's still a perception, isn't there, that construction is male-dominated, not really a place for women, and also is still surprisingly seen as a bit of a dirty industry. Um, people not really acknowledging the role that technology plays now and the very many different and diverse roles that there are in your sector. Do you think that you've still got a challenge as far as that's concerned? Yeah, I think reputationally, construction has still got a number of barriers to overcome. Um, but I think part of that is a lack of understanding and awareness and sort of promotion of what different avenues and different routes to careers and, and business that the, the sector can offer. Um, so, you know, construction sites are still places where stuff gets built. They are dirty. They are you know, hands-on, full-on experiences. And at the sharp end of business with what we do as a specialist contractor, we are very much at that at that level that, you know, we're out on site building things. There's a lot of companies in this sector with the name construction and their titles, but they don't actually build anything. But going back to the women piece, what you find through the way construction and property operates is the level and um, breadth of people that are involved in getting a building to, to, to site and to happen. Um, you know, further up those chains, you know, consultants, engineers, architects, some of those sort of more professional routes, certainly you're seeing more and more women involved in those. Women bring something different to the table. They add to the mix and you are definitely seeing that side of things broadening out. I mean, going back to the site piece, um, you don't see many women on site in the trades, but our business, we do actually have a female pastor on site. So we are promoting sort of that opportunity on site. And let me just stick with the challenges for a second, because you're going into an industry sector that, as we've outlined, isn't necessarily seen as a natural environment for females. And you're also going to work for your dad. Now, I employ my son in the business, or he employs me these days, I think. Um, but I've always felt that there was a little bit of, certainly when he first started, well, he's only working there because he's Frank's lad. Um, and, you know, knowing me the way I know me, that is certainly the furthest thing from the truth. And he was probably whipped harder than any of the other members of the team, to be fair. Did you find a little bit of that creeping in as well? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and no one's ever said that to me. They might have whispered it under their breath. But I think from day one, I had a point to prove precisely because of that. I never wanted to be seen as the boss's daughter. I wanted to be there on merit. I wanted to add something to the business. So I got taken on in a procurement role, um, which was shopping for a living, you know, who can't do that? Certainly, you know, I'm good at that. So buying bags of plaster, buying shoes, it's kind of the same thing. So I got involved in a procurement role and I set my own target that if I could save twice the amount of my salary in that first year, then I demonstrated to my, my value to anybody that maybe wanted to question it. But yeah, there was definitely, there's always been a point to prove that I'm not just, you know, related to the boss. And equally, the female thing, you know, you know, I'm not just just a woman who's been given a job to just keep with something to do. Mm. do. Do you 
think that, you know, some women still do look at the construction sector and see it as being too challenging, too much of a, a, a step beyond, if you like. Or as you've sort of indicated, those barriers are beginning to get knocked down. They are beginning to get knocked down, but I've got a 13-year-old daughter myself. And, you know, hand on heart, as we sit here now at the start of 2023, I can't see that I would be promoting to her that I'd want her to become, say, a site manager at any point in time. I don't think the barriers are broken down that much that that, that would be somewhere that I think she'd be comfortable being but then equally you know there's huge amounts of other roles within the industry and I certainly think that you know there's there's a, there could be a place for her in the broader industry. Anything that the industry sector could do more broadly to change that perception? Um, I think it is um, it is the whole piece around attitudes. It's the whole piece around language. It's the whole, it's the softer skills side of things that I think the sector focuses very much on the practical side and the operational side of life. But my business ethos is very much around, you know, business is all about people, you know, and you need to focus on people in whatever you do, whether that be your staff, your colleagues, your clients. At the end of the day, businesses are collections of people. Um, and it's really all about how those people interact. Um, and when you've had, say, construction sites where you've had loads and loads of men on, you know, teaching them and encouraging them to open up and to, you know, stop using the language that they potentially have used in the past. Um, I think that is what's going to make sites in particular a better place for women to be. I mean, I still go on construction sites now. And if I need the loo as a woman, you have to go to the receptionist and ask for a key to the loo because the women's toilets end up being a storeroom for the cleaners or the men use them and they get, you know, ruined. Yeah. So still some challenges. Yeah. But improvements have been made. Definitely. And just to, to finally on this really, because I want to talk about your passion for the great things that you're involved in as a company at the moment. But final point in, in terms of the, the general um, environment around construction. And uh, as you know, we've been working with a, another company called Causeway Technologies around mental health impact. Uh, and strangely enough, that appears to be something that is particularly challenging for men within the industry sector. And it was just something that you said then in terms of that macho image of the sector, which obviously is a problem in terms of trying to attract female talent, but also is a problem for people, men, with that mental health challenge. Again, is there anything that you think the sector has done, is doing, needs to do to address that issue? Because I think the last statistics I saw suggested that there's more suicides in the construction industry than, than any other sector. Yeah, well, I mean, I think there's a few things there. I think even just acknowledging that there is a problem with mental health and not just physical health and some of the legislation and some of the um, standards that are beginning to recognise that mental and physical health go hand in hand, you know, they're kind of one and the same. So, for example, our business recognises mental health in the workplace. We have a suite of, you know, mental health first aiders. We have support in place, counselling, sort of um, counsellors in the background and, you know, places to signpost people. I mean, I'm a mental health first aider myself. 
Um, and, you know, speaking sort of personally, you know, my dad um, was an alcoholic and he passed owing to an alcohol addiction. And so those mental health issues and those struggles touched me personally. And having experienced that four and a half, five years ago, I'm well aware of what can go on behind closed doors for people. And I think trying to support people, not just inside work, but outside work as well, is, is one of our roles as business leaders, as an employer. You know, I really do think that that's important. I think one of the challenges that construction has got is the way that it's set up is invariably... The bigger picture is, is it's set up on a contracting basis and contracts pit you against each other. It becomes adversarial and it starts off at the very top with the client thinking they're passing risk down through contracts. And that passing of risk down leads to us at the bottom of the food chain, holding the baby with all of this risk and in positions where that then passes down and gets pushed out to the staff. And I definitely think that the way the whole of construction is constituted, you know, there are some lads on site that don't know what they're going to get paid at the end of the week. You know, they don't, you know, they're up at the crack of dawn, they're working all the hours God sends, they're self-employed, you know, they're literally hand-to-mouth. And just the stress of their existence overlays onto some of the other issues that they may have in their lives. So to me, it's no surprise that we have the high levels of suicide and the high levels of mental health issues in construction with men. I think there are things that we can do about it, but I think it's a whole industry piece. You know, we're sending guys out on drives to go and do jobs in London. It takes them four or five hours in the morning to get there. They're overnighting, they're staying away from home. All of these things just don't constitute for good mental health. Mm. So some real difficulties there in terms of, you know, you've identified everything from financial stability right through to, you know, an impact on your family life. Yeah. Um, no wonder you're saying it's not necessarily going to be something you get your daughter to go into as a, <laughs> as a job. Um, but all of those things, you know, are issues that, as the managing director of the company now, but as someone who's worked their way through the business, are things that you must have experienced yourself. And, you know, as business owners, um, there's an additional pressure, isn't there, in terms of ensuring that there's enough work coming in and your team are paid and everybody has got that support structure in place for mental health issues and any other health issues that they have. Do you think that as a female, and particularly given your experience with your dad, you're a little bit more alive to some of those issues than perhaps male managing directors in similar positions? I absolutely do. And I don't think there's any harm in admitting there is a difference between the sexes. And I think, you know, sort of my my softer skill set, you know, my sort of the way I approach things is very different from the way a lot of people within our sector approach it. You know, a lot of people are profit driven. It's all about the money, whereas put the people first and the rest follows. And so, you know, my staff are like my work family. You know, we operate under something called the Mansell Way. And, you know, my door's always open and you spend more time with your work colleagues invariably than you do with, you know, your own family. So, it would be remiss of me not to treat them the same way as I would treat my husband and my kids and the way I treat myself. And that's interesting, the Mansell way. So I'm guessing that's creating a culture in terms of the way you want to take your business forward. 
Was that something you introduced? It was, yeah, after Dad passed. And, and it's almost like that happened suddenly. And, you know, he was only 67 when he died. So it was, it was almost like I was handed the baton of this business to do my lap. Um, and I wasn't really expecting it and I wasn't fully ready for it. But it became pretty obvious to me that the place to start was with the people that we had. So in terms of developing and defining a, a vision, mission, values and a culture within the business, we've spent a lot of time looking and, and getting involved in the staff in what does that look like? And it started in 2017 at the end of the year with asking them, why are you here? Why do you get out of bed every morning? And they developed a set of values. They developed a, a, a mission and a vision for kind of where this was going. That was, you know, that I kind of tapped into and then developed from there with them. And how did you find that transformation and transition from what was clearly a male-led family business? Um, so, you know, obviously I don't know your dad, but I'm guessing generationally he would have had quite a different opinion to you and a different approach. And then you've got a team that you're inheriting who have been brought up in the Mansell Dad's way, if we can put it that way. Yeah. What was that like? It's challenging. Um, and, you know, being really honest, it's a bit scary. You don't know if you're doing the right thing. You don't know if it's going to work. But I think if you trust your gut instincts and you go with what you know is the right thing to do, you'll have some bumps in the road. There'll be, you know, stuff never goes to plan. It never goes fully right. And part of that inherited team, as, you, as you're moving things along, some of it falls away. And things change and, you know, you move on. But I just stuck with what I knew was right in, in my gut. And, but yeah, it, it was scary. It was challenging at times. It's lonely. It's, you know, being any kind of leader, especially in a sort of smaller, in an SME, it can be lonely at the top. Um, and it took me a bit of time to assemble the right team around me to start to bounce some of this off. And have you found... Since 2017, and particularly since you've developed that sort of Mansell Way culture, you've started to develop and attract a different type of person than was previously in the place? Yeah, and it also influences your recruitment practices and who you're recruiting in the first place because you have more clarity around that, that fit. You know, and it is about recruiting the cultural fit because you can teach the skills later. If you can find people who are aligned to where, you know, the path you're on and the way that you do things, that's the starting point of recruitment. So then by default, yes, you do attract, um, you know, different type of people. Okay. Well, that's a fascinating conversation in terms of your career journey, your approach to management. Um, we're going to take a short break. And after that break, I'm going to ask you about some of the great things that you guys are involved at the moment, your passion for Greater Manchester in the North, uh, and also this commitment that is a genuine commitment from you in terms of net, net zero agenda and sustainability. So stick with us. Uh, this is Frank McKenna, the Downtown Den podcast, talking this week to Angela Manson. This season of the Downtown Den podcast, we are focusing on inspirational female business leaders. And on Friday, the 10th of March, we're hosting our annual Women in Business Awards at the Crown Plaza Hotel. We'll be celebrating the best in business from across the Liverpool City region 
And if you haven't voted for your favourite female business leader yet, go to our website, all the allthewsdowntownandbusiness.com, have a look at the nominees and vote for your favourites. If you've not booked a ticket yet, what are you waiting for? It's a great day, a great occasion. We'd love to see you there. Tickets are going fast. Again, get to our website, downtownandbusiness.com. Book your tickets today. New year, new start, and I'm sure that you've got resolutions, one of which will be to grow your business to the best that it can be. Well, if you're not a member of Downtown and Business yet, you're not going to be able to do that. What are you waiting for? We've got a series of events that are absolutely fantastic. Right across the country, you'll meet decision makers, business leaders, entrepreneurs, some of the most successful people in the country. You'll be able to influence discussion. You'll be able to put directly to the decision makers, to the politicians, what you think their priorities should be. Most importantly, you'll be able to connect with like-minded people, sell more stuff, get more business done. What are you waiting for? Join Downtown in Business today. Go to our website, all the W's, downtownandbusiness.com, and sign up. You will not be disappointed. 2023, if it's your year, you're going to have to be involved with the fastest growing business organisation in the UK. Welcome back to part two of season two, our first episode in this new series of the Downtown Dem podcast. We're going to be featuring some of the most influential, successful female business leaders in this series. And I'm joined this week by Angela Mansell from Mansell Building Solutions. We've talked about Angela's sort of career journey up to this point. Um, but over the past five, six years, I think what Mansell have developed, not just internally a culture, but also a culture externally that is determined to make a real contribution to the north of England and Greater Manchester in particular, because you're passionate. You're a passionate man, Mansell. There's nothing wrong with that. No. So tell me where that sort of thinking came from, you know, in terms of your business and developing it commercially, a lot of people in your space will say, right, we're going to look at the UK or we're certainly going to look at the country. Now, I'm not suggesting that if someone came along tomorrow from Birmingham or Coventry or somewhere else in the country, you'd say, well, no thanks. But you do have a genuine commitment and desire to get things done in Greater Manchester and the surrounding regions, don't you? Yeah. Um, you know, and fundamentally, I'm from I'm from here. I, I was born and raised in Stockport, so I'm a South Manchester girl. Um, and I've not really, you know, my, my dad was a mank, my mum's a mank, you know, the family history. In fact, I did Ancestry.com a couple of years ago and did the swab and was hoping I'd have some, you know, um, kind of, you know, heritage that would be really exciting and interesting and it was all Lancastrian. <laughs> there was a little bit of Irish in it, but I was born and my history is from around Greater Manchester. Um, and it's about it's about a sense of place. It's, you know, it's about a sense of belonging, you know, and I sort of look around, I look at what's happening in Manchester. I look at what's happened in my lifetime in Manchester. You know, I used to live in 
place called Heaton Mersey. I used to jump on the local bus, the 50 into Manchester. And you look at that bus corridor and you look at how things have changed um, for the better. And you look at how this city has been stimulated. Um, you look at, in particular, how it pulled together after the terrorist attack as well, the Ari- Ariana Grande concert. And, you know, the people and the spirit here is is really quite impressive. Um, and for me, it's just... You know, there is nowhere better than home. And I don't know any different. Manchester's my home. It's what I know. Um, But I do believe, you know, Tony Wilson said, this is Manchester. We do things differently here. And I genuinely believe that we do. We look at things differently. We look at people differently. We communicate differently. You know, you say hi to people on the street. You have a chat on the train or the bus, which is markedly different from time, you know, the brief times I've spent in London or whatever. And I just, I just believe in that passion of the people, that work ethic of the people, you know, the symbol of the city is the worker bee. You know, we are people who get stuck in and graft and who want to make change and change for the positive. And you think all those attributes contribute to the fantastic renaissance we've seen of Manchester over the past 30 years or so. And I'd also suggest, coupled with that, the leadership. And not just from the public sector, but from the private sector as well. Yeah, I think there's been some visionaries in Manchester, which I don't even think at the time we realised that's what they were. And then with hindsight, you look back and you go, wow, what, you know, what just happened here? But what that does is it, it stimulates this feeling that anything's possible, that, you know, give it a go. So I'm quite a logical person. I'm quite an analytical person. And I just look at things and just go, there's got to be a better way of doing this. Um, and, you know, that is what, you know, gets me up every morning. It's, it's something that has got to be a better way. There's got to be a way to do this differently and better. And you've got many passions, including for, for Manchester, of course. But I know at this moment in time, and I'll use the B analogy, you've got a B on your bonnet about social housing. Yes. And how that's delivered and how you can potentially help in terms of that very, very important and crucial agenda moving forward. So just tell me a little bit about that. So our business is based in Bolton, um, one of the greater Manchester boroughs. So we've got um, a factory in Bolton where we are um, building elements of the houses in a factory environment. So if you're committed to a factory, you've got to fill it. I'm employing people. They're relying on me for putting beans on toast for their kids, you know, every dinner time. They're relying on, on, on me um, employing them. So, so a factory requires throughput and it requires pipeline. And so when you lift your head up and look around, we're sat in Bolton in Greater Manchester. We're employing local people in Bolton in Greater Manchester. Um, and the stuff that we're delivering is in the neighbouring borough. A lot of what we're doing is in the neighbouring borough in Salford at the moment. And it's driven by a, a need for social housing. So when I really look at what we've kind of, we're not fallen into it, but we've drifted into it. When you look at that model, that model is essentially um, local houses for local people by local people. And what I mean by that is there's a huge need for new social housing. Um, And, you know, the existing stock, there's huge issues with some of the existing stock. There's more and more people, more and more demand. So what we need to look at is, we need to build high quality homes. We need to build them quicker. And ideally, we'd be doing it locally. Um, we'd be doing it exactly the way that I'm trying to impress upon the wider world. 
Um, and that is, you know, sat in Bolton. I should be building homes in Bolton, in Wigan, in Salford, and then we should be drif- drifting around the sectors of the Greater Manchester economy. Um, it, it really is that simple. And what we're doing is trying to systemize and process drive almost like a factory line. So some of what we do is in a factory. Some of what we do is still out on site, but it's driving process like you would through a factory. And it's something I'm terming deconstructed volumetric. Um, and it really is as simple as if we can get enough people to say, yes, this is a way to build houses, a couple of hundred a year, I reckon. We, we can probably deliver a thousand a year out of our factory, whether it be apartments or homes. But I can keep a factory busy. I can keep people employed in the factory. I can keep people employed out on site. I can bring new people in and train new people up. I can give people career paths and career progressions that they might have started on the factory floor, but eventually they become a supervisor or production manager or they're out on site um, delivering homes. So what we have is then a sustainable and circular economy. So we have um, employment for local people, a local supply chain delivering a local product to the local market. And to me, in terms of the bigger um, sustainability agenda that Greater Manchester has got, that's the obvious thing to be doing. Because there's no impact on the carbon footprint. Absolutely not. <laughs> and you're keeping the pound local. You know, everyone thinks that it is just about the, pl- the planet and carbon emissions and everything else. But the other key parts of sustainability are the people. You know, what are the people of Greater Manchester? How do we keep them, you know, sustained in employment and then the other part of that is is profit is not a dirty word and how do local companies make money to reinvest back in the training and development of those people infrastructure in the existing plant you know my model could be picked up and dropped into almost every single borough of greater manchester you know there is a blueprint for how this could be done just pick you up on something you've just said there profit isn't a dirty word um and obviously, I would massively subscribe to that. But in my opinion, there's been a shift during the past decade or so in terms of people's attitude towards business and almost an increasing distrust of why businesses operate, what their motives are. Every business owner's a greedy effort and, you know, are just on the take, on the take, on the take. Now, we're fortunate enough to work with literally hundreds of business owners. And I've said this before on the podcast, and I say it in absolute you know, certainty that we don't deal with people like that. We deal with people like you, who, of course, you want to turn a profit, but you want to do it for the right reasons. And also, you bloody work hard. And I just wonder where this attitude of almost anti-business, anti-enterprise has come from in recent times because we've got a Conservative government. You may disagree with me, by the way, which I'm happy for you to do, but we've got a Conservative government. And I think in the last count since 2019, we've enjoyed 24 tax increases. I'm not seeing any evidence of less regulation, less red tape after coming out of the European Union, which we were promised. But worse than that, I'm not really seeing political leaders anymore stand up in the way that Thatcher did, in the way that Blair did, and say, let's celebrate business. I just wonder, as I say, it may be me, but do you ever wake up in the morning and think, why am I working this hard and getting so much stick? Um, I don't, to be fair. 
because I'm really clear on why I'm doing it. And maybe that's part of where this gets lost. If as a leader, you're not really, if you're just doing it for the money, then that's why you end up with that label. And there probably are a lot of people out there that, you know, you see it on some social media, you know, the hustle, getting up at 4am. <laughs> you see all of that, don't you? You know, and potentially social media feeds some of this. One of the other things I was going to say is, is, you know, I think probably some of this is generational. I think there's probably, you know, I look at my kids as teenagers and, you know, is it Generation Z and, and all of, you know, the, the sort of the youth and some of the stuff where, where they get their information from is very different from where you and I would have. And I, and I do think some of it is... I mean, I blame social media for a lot of ills, but I think some of it is to do with those lines of communication into a younger generation. Um, but I mean, if you're clear on your culture and you're clear on what you're doing it and why you're doing it, then I think people can buy into that and understand that a lot more. It's an, easy, a, a, an interesting point you make about social media because I actually did a post just before Christmas which, again, it was just because I was conscious that I'd sort of done a couple of things around a review of 2022. And Angela, it looked as though I'd had the best year of my life. And then I reflected and I thought, well, actually, we've had some tough, shitty times this year. A couple of deaths in the family. Um, we'd had a couple of hits to the business. Conferences being cancelled through rail strikes, as you know. Yeah. Um, and I just thought, you know, I think one of the problems of that whole social media world is that people put photographs up and stories up of all the great times. And of course, business owners do the same. Yeah. And so if you're looking from the outside in, I get your point because you're thinking, oh, look at that guy, you know, they're always on holiday or now the team's gone away doing an away day at that snow down it, whatever it might be. We don't tend to go online and say, oh, just come in from a 12-hour day. You know, I've driven over to Liverpool today to take me three hours because the traffic, the rain, the weather. And perhaps we in ourselves need to start to reflect on the content that we put out there. Absolutely. And it's also that authenticity piece, isn't it? Mm. It's that piece around life is good and life is bad sometimes. Mm. Um, you know, the pandemic for me, for example, I'm only... I'm, it was probably about June last year where I really felt like we were coming out of the pandemic as a business and I was as an individual because I spent 18 months just being reactive and just being hand-to-mouth. And it was such a challenge. And I was in the throes of it at the time. But, you know the stuff that I went through in that pandemic you know owning and running a business when things are bad in the world it is no fun it's hard it's lonely it's sleepless nights it's worry it's fear it's stuff that you're not putting that on social media to be fair I didn't bloody have time to put it on social media <laughs> but if I, if someone asked me to recount the tale of the pandemic it wasn't pretty it was it was not nice yeah so I was the same, maybe we all need to reflect and be a bit more real and the words you use authentic in terms of some of the things that we put out there. I'm just a bit more conscious because as I say, when I reflected and I looked at those two posts, I thought, gosh, yeah. that sounds as though I've had the life around this year. And it was incredible for me because the reaction I got to that post which said, well, actually there was a bit of a, I called it the low lights. And the number of people who contacted me privately 
most of the, most of them, and said thanks for that because we've had a crap twelve months, and it's nice to see that even people are doing okay still have the tough times as well. As, as I say, I think the point that you made about authenticity is a good one. So you've obviously started to mold the business in the way that you want to see it progressing, moving forward. You've got this real commitment to Greater Manchester. You're passionate about social housing and the sustainability net zero agenda. Where would you like to take the business over the next three to five years? I want to grow it. Um, I believe in what we're doing. Um, I want to create new opportunities for new people coming into this industry and this sector. I want, you know, ultimately, you know, end customers. I want there to be more opportunity for people to live in good homes. You know, the amount of people that are living in temporary accommodation, you know, if there's a way to give back by ensuring that people have got good homes to live in, have got sustainable employment, you know, and it, to me, so it's about growth and, and it's potentially about creating something that can be replicated. Like I say, you know, you know, the big grand dream is we've got what we've got in Bolton. Why not have one of them in every single borough in Greater Manchester building homes for that borough? Not a bad ambition to have. Um, before we end, I can't let you go without talking to me about your other great passion, which is Manchester United Football Club. And you've just knocked my team Everton now to the FA Cup. I know you were at the match. Um, and again, you know, I'll relate this back to your business journey in a sense. You followed United forever, haven't you? Yeah. Um, but when you started going the match, there wouldn't have been many female faces in the crowd, I guess. That's been something that has been a real welcome change to the game. Um, and I just wondered again from a female perspective, really, you know, footy, was that something years ago that where you used to feel a bit strange going on? Have you always just been, oh, I'll get my elbows out and get stuck in? Yeah, I've probably been an elbows out, get stuck in, stand up, gob off at the <laughs> away supporters behind me. And yeah, I've always done that. I mean, um, there's me and my sister in our family. So my dad was an avid red. He grew up in Cholton in Manchester and he used to walk to the match. So you know, you didn't have any choice but to be a red. So he used to take me um, and later on my sister to the match. So I used to go to Old Trafford in the 80s when it was really, oh, really wow. dire. So yeah. I was, you know, probably no more than 10, 11 years old when I first started going to Old Trafford. So I've kind of been brought up on it. Um, I've seen some right rubbish on that pitch and I've been through the journey. Um, and so I've, well, I've always got stuck in, felt part of it, felt welcome and never felt, um, well, I spoke my mind Um but, you know, I'm still living on the glories of 99, thinking that that was 10 years ago. And unfortunately, it's nearly 25 years ago, isn't it? <laughs> Try being an Evertonian. Um, who's been, during that long period of time that you've been supporting the club, who's sort of been your, your hero during that period? Eric. Cantona. Yeah, Cantona. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Our boardroom is named the Cantona room after yeah, him. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, I think um, I remember that. Um, dark November night when United, when Eric, um, Alex Ferguson signed him from Leeds um, and I was in bed. I was at school the next day and my dad came in shaking me, waking me up, going, Ange, Ange, we've signed Eric. And I think he saw, my dad was always quite good at spotting things and, and he was like, this is going to change it. This is it. This is it. 
And he was absolutely right. I think that's what took us on the trajectory of, of the 90s and the, the early 2000s. And do you think San Hag is going to take you back there? Interesting. Um, I'm not sure. Whilst we've still got the owners that we've got, I think hands will always be tied. I think the bigger question is the Americans. I think my mate Gary Neville would agree with you. <laughs> Angela Manson, thanks very much for being in the downtown den. Thanks, Frank. So that was me, Frank McKenna, Chief Executive and Group Chairman of Downtown and Business, talking to Angela Mansell, Managing Director of Mansell Building Solutions. Fascinating conversation, talking about lots of different challenges, but perhaps as well touching on the positives that female leaders can offer bring to a business, not least that cultural shift that she's been able to introduce into the business, the Mansell way, that awareness of challenges around flexibility, the awareness of mental health issues. Uh, And I think what did clearly come across in that conversation was Angela's passion for Manchester, for Greater Manchester uh, and for the North. And obviously she wants to play her part in an inclusive growth event agenda. Uh, that provides local jobs, local homes um, for local people and all power to her. Uh, next week in the downtown den, we've got a woman who's equally passionate uh, about Manchester, uh, not surprisingly because it's the leader of Manchester City Council, Bev Craig. She has had a fascinating career journey. I'm sure you'll enjoy listening to her. And sadly... She's a Manchester United fan too. Listen to us next week back in the downtown there. Uh, me, Frank McKenna, in conversation with Beth Craig.